Hello, and welcome back to Archives of Fabella. Before we continue on this journey through time, smash that follow or subscribe button to get more new episodes when they come out. While you're at it, please like and share the podcast so all your friends can hear this adventure. Send all questions to archivesoffabella at gmail.com, and I'll answer some of them in a future mailbag episode. Let's get to today's story. The month of May brings us to the fifth age of Fabella, the Age of Monsters. This is the medieval era of history that a lot of you will be more familiar with in fantasy. I named this era the Age of Monsters largely because of the number of dictators, barbarians, and dark magic users that crop up in this period. What is a monster, though? Is it only a sterling animal with fangs, or could it actually be another person or thing that may not have a shape at all? It's easy to think of real monsters as anyone or anything that disrupts our lives. But today, I want to challenge you to think about monsters that you create in your own life. We are all guilty of prejudice somewhere in our lives. Me? I think the group of people I struggle with the most are those who are not on the same political spectrum as me. That's really poignant now because, on top of everything else, we're heading into an election year that's sure to be turbulent to say the least. That is all I'm going to say for now because this isn't about politics. This is about the opinions we as people tend to have against another group, either through history or personal experience. It's human to just say, I'm going to separate myself from this and hang around with like-minded people. Doing this, we try to fool ourselves into believing that the world is black and white. But what happens when the space is invaded by a person who represents a group you don't like? Do you open your heart to them? Or do you continue to do everything in your power to close yourself off and pretend they don't exist? Most of us, if we're being honest with ourselves, do the latter. It takes bravery to tear down that wall and open your heart and home to someone opposite of you. But the funny thing is that these moments of vulnerability are also demonstrative of tremendous love. It takes courage to be kind, which makes it all the more ironic that this trait is often viewed as a weakness in our society. I'm Dylan Foley, and this is Archives of Fabella. Beyond our world, there is love. Beyond our world, there is war. Beyond our world, there is life. Beyond our world, there is Fabella. Four thousand eighty-five FY, Fabella year, 
equal to 85 AD Earth Year. Get back! There's too many of them! So many frantic voices pounded a little gnome's ears. All she could see was dark, folded cloth as she was jostled uncomfortably about on her mother's breasts. Her mother released a painful cry. The gnome felt herself pulled into a rapid descent as mother and daughter both fell to the cold, hard ground. Cries of horror began to die out as thick bodies fell to the jungle floor. Mother and daughter both lay there for a moment as the little gnome squirmed in the cloth. The gnome finally freed herself and stumbled over her mother's limp hand. She had only learned how to walk a few weeks ago so she was far from sure-footed as she plopped down on the ground, strewn with creepy crawling insects after a few wobbly steps. Undaunted, the little gnome pulled herself up and continued wandering around the jungle environment, dragging her purple blanket behind her the entire way. Heavy footsteps fell on the dry leaves of the ground behind her. A deep voice rolled over the gnome like thunder. I found her. The baby gnome looked up just in time to see a huge, gnarly, green hand coming toward her. She clutched her blanket close to her in fear. The huge hand drew near to her, clawing at the white linen dress over the gnome's stocky little body. Bright purple light suddenly burst out of the gnome. The tall figure yelped as the huge hand left with the body and fell to the ground several feet away. This wasn't the first time purple light of this kind had sprung from the gnome. Judging by the reactions of the big people around her, this was a bad thing. She didn't mean to do it. Still. She couldn't help feeling like she was about to get punished. She ran to her mother, who appeared to be sleeping, and huddled next to her body. The gnome's mother always protected her. Mom would know exactly what to do. Oi! What are you yelling about? The gnome could hear another voice in the distance. <laughs> it, I found her! Where? Back there. In the clearing. The gnome huddled closer to her mother, drawing the blanket over her. Another set of heavy footfalls snapped twigs and crushed leaves as they walked over to the area before declaring, I don't see anything. Are you blind? She was right there. It was probably a V-line or an imp. It was her. Well, whatever it was, it's gone now. We must have been tricked. The gnome is nowhere around here. Let's go back to the fort. It's almost nightfall. But she was right there just a second ago. 
I don't want to hear it, Bustard. Let's go. Don't you smell the gnome? There's a dead gnome right there. Of course I smell her. Just take a few more seconds to- I'm leaving. You can either choose to follow me and the caravan back to the fort, or stay out here for the Camelot's bats to tear you to shreds. The gnome shuddered as the chill of night started to grip her. She listened to the footsteps of the fearsome people creeps off through the thick jungle. The gnome prodded her mother for a moment, trying to wake her, finding that her mother could not be roused. The gnome snuggled close to her and drifted off to sleep. Dad! Tristos Morsada swayed in place as he cracked open his beady goblin eyes. His three children could always be counted on to wake him up before dawn. Cora, his wife, hovered beside him, doing her best to pretend to be asleep. Daddy! The children are calling for you, dear, said Cora dryly. Tristos groaned tiredly as he shook off the blanket over his lanky frame, letting it fall to the floor below. Goblins like him could climb on walls and ceilings. They slept hanging upside down from the rafters, wrapped in blankets. The second the fibers of the woolen blanket touched it down upon the wooden floor, Tristos knew that it was time to start the day. He swung himself up to the ceiling and crawled down to meet his two youngest children. Five-year-old Agamatha, with wavy black hair like her mother, and four-year-old Aram smiled up at their father. Tristos' long, shoulder-length, messy, raisin-black hair hung over his face like a pair of curtains as he set his gnarly brown hands on his hips. What is so important? Look what I can do! Shouted Aram as he blew a bubble with snot from his nose. I can blow a bigger bubble! Boasted Agamatha. Wanna see? Never. Tristos was too tired to feign pleasure and amazement over his children's gross talent. Go back to sleep. The children scampered off to their bedrooms. Tristos could already see the sunlight kissing the great silver mountains in the distance. Two of his children had already gotten him up. Now was as good a time as any for him to wake up his oldest son so they could get a start on feeding the livestock and take advantage of all the daylight possible. Fenric! Time to get up! Ordered Tristos. Ten-year-old Fenric rubbed the sleep out of his eyes as he staggered out of his room, stumbling about the household like he was blind. The Morsada family made a good living at Fort Rucasolis. Tristos supported his family of five as a blacksmith. The Fantasian Republic's economy was heavily reliant on trade with the Far East. Flying mounts and freight ships needed a place to rest midway through their journey. That place was the island of Adele. 
This made Rincosolis a large and profitable trading post. All goods from the far east and west flowed through the fort. One little island successfully became the favorite destination for all people around the world. Tristos took full advantage of this, and business was very good. Tristos built the two-story home for his family on the outskirts of the fort with his father. By building outside the fort, they were able to set their stake on a substantial area of unclaimed land property practically for free. The fort status as an important trading post gave them access to plenty of building materials across the world. Most of the first floor was devoted to a living space and food was cooked over the fires in the brick fireplace. All three bedrooms were located upstairs on the second floor. They had some livestock, but weren't farmers. Tristo spent most of his time toiling away in the adjoining blacksmith workshop. Hunters and warriors from all around the world arrived at Tristo's doorstep for his expertly custom handcrafted wares. Tristos's dirty brown hands hammered away all day to create gleaming swords so polished that he could see his reflection. The market for forging shoes for fawns and various mounts was extremely good. Tristos did quite well for himself. He'd ascend to his late father's place as head of the blacksmith guild in no time. The goblin blacksmith guild agreed to share their money and support each other. Goblins had a storied history of creating the best items and engaging in the trade business. They protected their own in ways that were lost on other races of people in Fabella, especially the dwarves. Dwarves were a major threat to the Goblin Blacksmith Guild. Their work was crude, but cheap, taking away a lot of business from hard-working goblins. Dwarves displayed little appreciation and constant disregard for the art of smithery. They mass-produced copies of swords and daggers. There was nothing unique about their goods. They just cranked out weak armor and poorly made weaponry, because they were geared toward quantity and not quality. To top it off, dwarves also started their own port called Orthos, taking away a large amount of business from the people of Runkosolis. This was Tristos' home. He loved his fair fort with all his heart. To see it begin to decline, all because of some good-for-nothing halflings, drove him mad. So, the sudden appearance of two dwarves outside Tristo's workshop was not a happy meeting at all. What do you two want? Tristo's brown hand tightened around the handle of a sword whose blade was still red hot from the furnace at the sight of these two thickly built, short, bearded gentlemen invading his property. Get off my land! One of the dwarves narrowed their bushy auburn brow. We mean no disrespect, sir. I don't do business with halflings, said Tristos vilely. The dwarf who spoke up earlier stood firm. My name is Hogan. People in town say that you are fairly tight with the blacksmith guild. Tristos gave a low hurrah in reply. Hogan the Dwarf continued. I, uh, I, I, I was hoping that you would know of any guild members engaged with violence toward my people. 
I don't take blade to your kind, and I prefer the same from you. Tristos thrust the red-hot blade of the sword forward, just to scare Hogan back. Hogan stumbled back out of fright and tripped over his boots. Tristos laughed at the comical expression of Hogan's fat face. A group of my people were supposed to come here, but they haven't arrived yet, and I'm starting to get worried. I don't like dealing with your kind any more than you like me, but I need your help. Leave, hissed Tristos. Hogan glared back at him, chubby little hand already on the hilt of his crooked sword, poised to strike at any moment. If you hear of anything, please- Scram! Barked Tristos. Hogan backed away and hurried off with his mute partner as fast as he could with such stubby little legs. Cora sidled up to Tristos from the house stationed nearby with Aram tugging at her dress the entire way. What were those two ugly dwarves doing here? Ugly dwarves! Repeated Aram. Something about their people. I, I, I wasn't really listening. Admitted Tristos. You didn't let them touch anything, did you? Cora let her beady eyes rake over their property. We can't let the children be exposed to such awfulness. Tristos continued working. I handled it. Mom, what's a dwarf? Asked Aram. He was at that stage where all he did was copy everyone and ask questions. Cora turned to her son. Dwarves are small, diseased little pests not fit to walk this land. I'm little, said Aram fearfully. Am I a dwarf? Cora gently stroked her son's wild black mane. No, you're little now, but someday you'll grow up big and strong like your father. Yeah, I'm going to be big and tall like daddy, shouted Aram with joy. Tristos continued working throughout the day until the sun set, signaling it was time to head inside. Ten-year-old Fenric had just started his apprenticeship with his father, and was still learning the nightly duties involved with work. Tristos had to follow his son around, correcting every bit and piece around the shop the youth left half-finished. The tools weren't properly put away, dirty rags weren't where they were supposed to be, the furnace in the fire still wasn't out, the cabinet doors were still wide open, and the pen for Rosie, the family Katobel pass, wasn't hinged properly. Boy! Barked Tristos into the night. Fenric tentatively poked his green goblin head out from the corner of the workshop. Tristos almost threw his shoulder out with the amount of force he put into jabbing his finger down to the ground. Fenric looked every bit like a dog who peed on the carpet as he shuffled up to his father. You didn't lock Rosie's pen! Tristos hammered his dark fist down on the wooden fence for emphasis. 
Kotobo paths were cattle with thick manes that fell over their eyes. They were incredibly skittish, so much so, in fact, that it was advisable to let their hair grow over their eyes to make them blind to the outside world. All Kotobo Pass cows were female. The male bonacons were another species altogether. Rosie was the family's primary source for milk and butter. Without her, the family couldn't have any milk to feed the younger children. Tristos had no choice but to take Fenric into the jungle after her. Light a torch. We're heading out. At night? Protested Fenric. Yes, at night, said Tristos harshly. Stay close to me. There's a lot of monsters in the jungle. If we're lucky, Rosie will still be in one piece. Tristos loaded up his crossbow and stuck a sword in his scabbard before heading out into the deep, dark rainforest bordering the family's property. Rosie's tracks in the wet mud led directly through the thick, overgrown mass of towering trees, flowers, and fungi. Abnormally large mushrooms and begonias were the least of their problems, because the jungle hid dangerous animals around every corner. The light from Fenric's torch fell upon a snake slithering up the trunk. Giant spiders flexed their legs as they lay waiting in the trees. Little primate-like tree people ran away from the fire, and a growl rolled out of the darkness. Everywhere Tristos looked, he saw brilliant yellow eyes watching them from the darkness. It was as if all of these predators were talking to each other and taking their time to decide whether to pounce. Then the light of Fenric's torch lit up the most terrifying sight of all. Decaying bodies of dwarves littered the ground. Tristos saw maggots climbing out of blank eye sockets. A colony of antlions ate away at the bodies, and many of them sported marks from animals gnawing at the corpses. A cry echoed out through the dark rainforest. Tristos followed the whimpering to a dead gnome. The crying came from a little baby whining to be fed. Oh lord, it's a baby dwarf, exclaimed Fenric. Gnome, corrected Tristos. Gnomes are female dwarves. This one can't be any older than 18 months. Tristos gazed upon the terrifying nightmare before him with trepidation. The bodies layering the rainforest floor all looked like ragdolls cast aside by their assaulters for sport. He suddenly recalled the discussion that he had that afternoon with Hogan. Hogan thought members of the Goblin Blacksmith Guild were responsible for this bloodshed. Tristos imagined that it had to be someone else. His people couldn't possibly have been the ones to do this. The fact this slaughter had occurred near his home and Fort Rinkasolos was doubly frightening. The corpses of wild boars the dwarves traditionally rode on sported blade marks on their hides. The gnome had been fallen by an arrow in the back of the head. Her baby, apparently too young to understand death, shook her mother's shoulder as if to try and wake her up. 
Against his better judgment, Tristo stooped down to gently lift the baby off her mother. The baby started screaming bloody murder the second she was torn away from the dead matriarch. Her wails were so loud, Tristos was rendered temporarily deaf. He pat her back the way that he used to with his own children when they were this small. Surprisingly, that seemed to put the baby at ease, and she muffled her small little whimpers against the fur hide draped over Tristos' shoulder. What are you doing? asked Fenric. She's just a baby, Fen. We can't leave her out here, argued Tristos. Poor little thing. It's a miracle she's still alive. The child was warm to the touch. Tristos brushed the child's blonde hair back from her face, revealing watery blue eyes and a little button nose. A sigh of relief escaped him when he realized the child was not injured. Tristos reached to his belt for his canteen. He uncorked it and poured a little bit of water over his fingers to show the little one what the canteen held. Raising it to his lips, he took a wallow before offering the skin to the baby gnome. The little one accepted the canteen and took a cautious sip. Finding nothing amiss with the taste, she drank deeply. Water dribbled down her chin into the white dress stained with blood. Hey, look at this. Fenric stooped down to pick up a strange blanket. Tristos accepted the blanket from his son. He'd seen something like this once before. One side of the blanket was lined with purple fleece, but the other side magically created the illusion of the scenery behind it. Any object wrapped in the blanket was effectively invisible. It's an invisibility blanket. Tristos marveled at the piece. Definitely goblin-made. These are rare. I wonder why this gnome would feel the need to cover her daughter in it. I don't know that there are any other survivors here, Dad, said Fenric. Aurora from above shed light on the eerie, nightmarish scene. Nothing moved, not even the animals around them. Tristos got the unsettling sense that fear gripped the forest. Fear of what? He did not know. The baby gnome shivered in Tristos' arms. He tried caressing her back to calm her down. She squirmed around, fussing about and trying to free herself. Left with no alternative, Tristos swaddled her in the invisibility blanket. If he looked down, he could just see the top of her little blonde head. The rest of the baby's body inside the blanket was completely invisible. Tristos looked like he was holding absolutely nothing against his chest. You look kind of weird, Dad. Quipped Fenric. Shut up and pick up everything from the gnome you can carry, directed Tristos. Make sure you get the pack. Yes, father, said Fenric begrudgingly as he commenced doing what he was told. All thought of the lost Catobalpass faded from their minds as the father and son set off back to their settlement. Tristos was convinced the animal was dead anyway, so there was no point in staying out in the jungle longer than was necessary. 
Fenric lit the way with his torch back home while Tristos struggled to hold both the invisible baby and his crossbow. It was an awkward position to be found by Bussard Growheart. Bussard Growheart was a member of the Goblin Blacksmith Guild, known to be a thick-headed smith specializing in making battle axes. At about a head taller than Tristos, the thickly built goblin hunter put up an intimidating front for someone so dim-witted. Bussard's business had been affected the most by the dwarves, and he took up a lot of guild meetings railing madly against the halflings. Tristos suspected that he would still be in poor financial shape even without interference from the dwarves. Bussard's axe blades tended to slip off the handle because he was too careless to properly fix it onto the weapon. Bussard was so big and muscular that he fit into a special class of people called orcs. The term orc rose in popularity over the years to describe someone who was all brawn and no brains. It wasn't strictly regulated to goblins. Though orcs were predominantly goblin folk, the word could be used to describe anyone, no matter their race. Stop! Hollered Bussard into the night. What are you doing here? We were looking for our lost Catulba Pass, responded Tristos. What the... Uh, finds you out here on this auspicious night? Bussard tried to work out in his head what the word auspicious meant. Tristos and Fenric pushed past the brutish orc. Bussard reached out with his big green hand to seize Tristos by the neck. I smell a dwarf. Well, we did find a bunch of dead dwarves back there, said Fenric. Bussard let go of Tristos. Seems closer. You wouldn't know anything about those bodies, would you? Inquired Tristos. Can't say I do, replied Bussord. Tristos suspected this wasn't the case, but he didn't have enough time to waste speaking to Bussard this deep in the rainforest, and he especially didn't want the oafish orc to know that he had a baby gnome on his broad chest. Hmm. Well, well, we really should be going. Bussard eyed Tristos and Fenric suspiciously for a moment, but allowed them to continue on their path. He turned and walked off toward the site of the massacre. Fenric waited until they were a safe distance away before saying, He did it. I know. Tristos looked behind him. He could only see the little light of Bussard's flickering torch in the distance. I don't think he was alone. Who do you think helped him? Wondered Fenric. I don't know. I'll have to head to the market tomorrow to ask around. Tristos held back nothing to his son as he thought out loud. Maybe those dwarves who came by earlier today are still in town and we can get rid of this rugrat. Mom is going to hit the roof when she sees that kid, noted Fenric. Tristos hadn't given this much thought before. How would they hide the child? Cora hated dwarves more than any person Tristos knew. She would never let a gnome in the house, 
even if it was a helpless little baby. Listen to me. We are not going to tell your mother about the baby. What the hell are you going to do with it? Wondered Fenric. You are going to keep her in the workshop and out of sight. Decreed Tristos. I'll run interference with your mother. We'll only have to keep this baby hidden for the night. And maybe a little in the morning. A day tops. This will all blow over by tomorrow. It'll be fine. Fenric buried his face in his palm. We're in big trouble. They walked all the way back home in silence. The baby gnome calmed down enough so that she just cooed a little against Tristos' chest. She seemed to be on the verge of falling off to sleep. Tristos felt confident that she would slumber through the night and not be much fuss at all. He handed off the baby to Fenric when they reached the house with instructions to Place her in the basket and stay with her until she falls asleep. I'll be out to check on you after I meet with your mother. If she whines, give her a cracker and some water. Fenric took the baby to the workshop while Tristos marched inside the house. Cora looked up with a smile as he entered. Any luck? No. We lost her. Tristos had a habit of leaving the front door wide open whenever he entered the house. I'll head out to town tomorrow to get a new calf. It was time to get a new one anyway. Rosie was getting a bit old. Where is Fenric? inquired Cora. Tristos did his best to formulate an excuse for Fenric's absence. He's out in the workshop finishing up his chores. Could be out there all night. I've got him polishing the blades. The smell is pretty bad. You don't want to go out there. Keep the younger kids away too. Judging by the relaxed expression on Cora's face, this explanation was sufficient for her liking. Did you have any trouble in the forest? Not really. Tristos turned away from Cora as he spoke, so she couldn't read his face. It was a fairly uneventful journey. Really? Cora arched her brow. That's impressive. I thought that you would come back with stories about being attacked by a keythog, or worse. Had me worried sick. I couldn't sleep a week. <sighs> Sorry about that. Apologized Tristos, intent on remaining on Cora's good side as much as possible. Well... You're home now. That's... what? Oh, good lord! Tristo spun around wildly. What? How many times do I have to tell you to close the door? You're going to let in a giant spider one of these days! Be realistic, chastised Tristos as he headed to the hearth. Giant spiders are way too big to get through the door. It's more likely that a rainbow serpent will slither in. Great leaping crops! exclaimed Cora. This time, when Tristo spun around, he was confronted with the sight of the little gnome standing duck-footed in the threshold with her little thumb in her mouth. Fenric appeared seconds too late to recover the child who had escaped his watch. 
The goblin boy froze still as a statue in the face of his mother's expression of horror. Where did this baby come from? demanded Cora. Tristos slid in before Fenric could say anything. Yeah, son, where did the baby come from? Fenric fixed Tristos with an astonished look of betrayal as he stammered to think of something. I, I, I found her. Cora's maternal instincts kicked in as she took the baby into her arms. You found a baby out in the jungle? Uh-huh, nodded Fenric. Well, son, I am very disappointed you didn't share this with me, said Tristos, playing the role of an oblivious parent wonderfully. I assure you, Cora, the boy will be dealt with harshly. This was too much for Fenric's taste. You lying sack of- Tristos raced forward to cup a hand over his son's mouth. Boys will be boys. Fortunately, Cora was too absorbed in cooing over the baby gnome to listen. Why, she's just a darling. What race is she? Human, responded Tristos confidently. She's a little baby girl. Cora had nothing against humans, and they were similar enough to dwarves that Tristos' excuse was passable. Funny, she seems a little... Small for a human. Probably malnourished, suggested Tristos. Fenric doesn't know how long she was out there alone. Do you, son? Yeah. Fenric seemed to be keeping his distance from the baby and eyeing her with fear in his eyes. There's something you guys should know. Nonsense. Tristos clamped down on his son's shoulder. Your mother and I know everything there is about raising a child. Nothing could surprise us. Wanna bet? Asked Fenric. Cora set the baby down on a chair. Poor thing is covered in blood. Oh, the horrors she must have seen. It's too dreadful to think about. I think I have an old nightshirt of Agamatha's over here in a dresser somewhere. Right when Cora turned her back, a purple glow emitted out of the baby. Tristos watched in awe as the baby and the chair levitated in mid-air. His mouth dropped to the floor. He'd heard of magic before, but had never seen it with his own eyes, and never exhibited by someone so young before. The baby just continued sucking her thumb like nothing was the matter, and she wasn't hovering five feet in the air. I tried to tell you, explained Fenric. Kid flew straight up out of my arms when I tried to get her into the workshop. Tristos was at a loss for words as he stood agape. If his jaw could open any more, it would have hit the floor. Ah, here we are, said an oblivious Cora in triumph as she found the nightshirt. The baby and the chair landed on the wood floor right when Cora turned around. Let's get you out of those icky clothes, cooed Cora to the baby before shooting a glance at her husband and son. 
What's got you two so anxious? Tristos nearly choked on his tongue. Nothing, dear? We should have dropped the kid when we had the chance, whispered Fenric. Keep calling her the baby, stated Cora as she settled the little gnome on her hip the following morning. What do you think about the name? Terra. That's fine, grunted a dumbstruck Tristos in reply. Tristos felt like the walking dead. He hadn't slept a wink all night. He remained seated by the basket where Cora had placed baby Terra to sleep throughout the night. Purple sparks would occasionally issue out of the baby as she slept. Cora remained delightfully oblivious to any of the magic displayed by the young gnome. That was the way he wanted to keep it. What's wrong with you? Asked Cora. This question was ironic, to say the least, coming from Cora. If she could have looked at herself in a mirror, she would have seen the pulsating, violet boils leaking jelly all over her face. Nothing is wrong, responded a wide-eyed Tristos. Everything is fine. Terror glowed bright purple again. Tristos watched in horror as Cora's ears swelled to twice their size. Terror giggled with delight. <laughs> Who's a happy baby? You are! Cooed Cora. Little Agamatha wandered into her parents' room at the worst possible time. She looked up at her big-eared mother covered in jelly boils and smiled with delight. You look funny, mommy. You look funny too! Echoed Cora jokingly. I gotta go to the market. Tristos couldn't pull on his boots and cinch a belt around his waist fast enough. I don't know when I'll be back. Dawn had barely begun to touch the horizon as the household awoke. Tristos saddled up the family unicorn and a disfigured Cora prepared the morning meal with Terra on her hip. The smell of porridge, eggs, and sausage attracted Terra's attention as she gazed upon the breakfast with great interest. Cora was never happier when she had a baby on her hip. She joyfully wrinkled her nose at Terra. Tristos doubted that she'd be smiling so much if she knew Terra was a gnome and not a human. Agamatha and Aram bounced excitedly and chattered at Terra. They made faces and tugged on their ears, all for the baby's entertainment. He rejected them with an odd stoic expression. Terra examined the contents of the bowl. Sniffing it cautiously, the porridge smelled rather good, so she took a small bite. It was easy to tell she liked it by the way that she gobbled up the porridge and whined when it was gone. You have big ears, mommy, said Aram. Tristos almost choked on his food. Cora, still oblivious to her magically oversized ears, just smiled at the four-year-old. You'll have big ears too when you grow up. Aram grabbed his ears in terror. I'm heading out, announced Tristos to the table as he climbed to his feet. 
You've barely eaten anything, said Cora. Tristus was already halfway out the door. I have to get an early start if I'm going to find that little one a family she belongs with. Maybe we could be her family, suggested Cora. Tristus froze in place. What do you mean? Cora gently smoothed Terra's blonde locks. By all means, do everything you can to find her family. If you can't, maybe it wouldn't be the worst thing in the world to adopt her. Poor little girl needs a place to call home. Tristos couldn't entertain the idea. No, she has to go back to her own kind. Just think about it, pled Cora as one of the jelly blisters on her face burst. Tristos left without another word. Unicorn is ready to go, Dad, said Fenric as he hiked back up to the house. Mmm, I smell breakfast. Tristo stopped the ten-year-old before he could go inside. Your mother is going to look a little... different. Just do your best to treat her normally. I'll be back as fast as I can. A very confused Fenric sauntered past his father to enter the house. Tristos got about two steps in before Fenric's horrified scream echoed from the house. He chose to keep going and not break stride. Heading back inside would only delay his mission. Tristos swung a leg over his unicorn and galloped off to town. Mounts untethered to a carriage like the unicorn Tristos rode in on had to be tied off to a post outside of town. There wasn't enough room for everyone to be on a mount and still be able to get through the crowded streets. Tristos tied off the unicorn outside of town as was the custom and set off on foot. The town sprawling outside Fort Ricasolis was busy as usual. Merchants sold their wares out of tents stationed along the docks where they could meet arriving freight ships, the airport where flying mounts like Pegasus's towing carriages behind them landed was equally full of salespeople. The dusty streets were clogged with people from all walks of life. Buildings made out of wood and stone were so scrunched together they allowed little room to squeeze through. The stone walls around town were just there to protect citizens from monsters around the jungle. It had been years since Rukasola saw any real military threat from another kingdom. The Republic of Fantasia protected their precious colony from incoming attack quite well. It was well known that an attack on Rukasolos would bring the Republic to its knees. That was enough of a reason for Fantasia to keep a troop of soldiers on hand to maintain peace and order. Tristo searched all around the bustling village for any sign of the dwarves who came to meet him the day before. There was no sign of Hogan, or any dwarf for that matter. He saw fawns, elves, humans, harpies, merfolk, trolls, centaurs, minotaurs, and even slithtars. No dwarves. It was all very odd. He'd never known a time for the dwarven kind to be away from Rukasolas before. Then again, Tristos had never really cared if the group of halflings was around or not before now. It struck him as quite abnormal. 
Figuring halflings would know exactly where the dwarves might be, Tristos focused his attention on interrogating the trolls and antics of Rugosolis. There weren't many of them around either. In fact, he noticed a lot of them were in the middle of getting off the island. They all rushed to pack up everything they could carry to catch the next ship out of the dock bound for the distant continent of Cathara, or the Far East, anywhere that was not Adele. Tristos found it amazingly difficult to get any halfling to stop and speak with him. Many of them scattered in his presence. Tristos didn't get an answer to these curious actions from Rukasolus's smallest population until he found a pair of fawn soldiers loading a dead dwarf onto a stretcher. As he neared the grisly scene, Tristos could tell the dwarf had been stabbed and the deceased was fortunately not the same one who met him the day before. The Fantasian military was responsible for all matters of law enforcement on Rukasolus. They were often late to react, and a group that struck first and asked questions later. Little of their attention was geared toward investigating crimes and tracking down leads. They were only around to prevent the village from erupting into anarchy. Tristos marched toward the soldiers who were loading the dead dwarf onto their wooden cart occupied by other dead dwarves and gnomes. What happened? Another stabbing victim responded the fawn soldier without a hint of sympathy or desire to wonder why his cart was so full of dwarven corpses. Why so many deaths? asked Tristos. The soldier just gave a simple, non-committal shrug. It's not my kind. That's all I need to know. There's an entire group of dwarf corpses out in the jungle, stated Tristos. Again, the disinterested fawn soldier showed no concern. I'm not heading out there, so that's probably where they're going to stay. Tristos was flabbergasted. Aren't you concerned at all why these dwarves are turning up dead? Look, I'm busy. If the perpetrators turn up, then sure, I'll put them in jail. Till then, our only job is to keep the peace. The town doesn't need to be worried about a bunch of dwarves nobody cares about winding up dead. Do yourself a favor and just go about your business. Tristos refused to give up. Have you picked up a dwarf about five feet tall with bushy hair named Hogan? No, grunted the soldier. Tristos stood back feeling utterly powerless as he watched the fawn soldier climb into the driver's seat with his two partners and crack a whip against the hulking armored backside of the Bonacon bull, pulling the cart over the dusty street. As Tristos turned to head further down the street, he saw a little Entic watching him from the alleyway. The blue-skinned female Entic's glowing antenna twitched. She opened her mouth like she was about to speak, but her orange-skinned husband quickly swooped in to hustle her down the street. Wait! Tristos gave chase. I don't mean you any harm! The halfling pair were too quick. They rounded a corner and disappeared into the thick crowd before Tristos could reach them. Tristos! He turned when his name was called, 
to find none other than Atnerk Rusburm, chapter head of the Goblin Blacksmith Guild, coming toward him. The rotund goblin needed a wide berth to clear room for himself and Bussord towering behind him. Tristus forced a strained smile in the face of these two insufferable goblins. It was important not to anger them for the sake of peace within the guild. I thought that was you. Rusperm heartily shook Tristo's hand and clapped him on the shoulder a little harder than he would have liked. How have you been? The wife and I are looking forward to that Founder's Day soiree. Thank you so much for offering your home up as a venue. We were really struggling to find a place this year. You're always dependable, Tristos. That's what I like about you. Uh-huh. Tristos wasn't really listening, and still devoted his attention to scanning the crowd for any signs of the antic couple. How has your family been? Asked Vesperm. Uh, what? I, I'm sorry, I, what, I didn't quite hear that. Said Tristos. Your family. Repeated Vesperm. I trust they're holding up well. Oh, yes. Uh, very well, said Tristos, still only half listening. Tall Bussord had to lean down to whisper into his boss's ear. Yes, yes, I'm getting to that. Rusperm turned his attention back to Tristos. Bussard here says he saw you and your son around the jungle last night. Mentioned you came across a group of dead dwarves. We were out looking for our Catoblopaths that had run away, announced Tristos. Sad to say we couldn't find her. Rusperm swept a thick arm to Tristos' side, guiding him into a darkened alleyway in town. My sympathies. About the dwarves, though. I'm afraid it's a bit of a fragile subject. You see, I would very much appreciate it if you would not report it to the authorities. This piqued Tristo's attention. You weren't involved, were you? I'm sorry we didn't tell you. It wasn't meant to be so close to your land. Tristos was too surprised to speak. He knew Bussard was at fault and wasn't working alone, but his theory was that the goblin brute had been working with a group of merciless thugs. Never in his wildest imagination would Tristos have suspected that the guild members, his own kind, and the people he counted as his closest friends would be capable of this kind of bloodshed. We had to do it explained Rusperm. Someone tipped us off that the group was in possession of an extremely dangerous magical child. We couldn't find the child, so we've been knocking down the door of every dwarf household in Rungtosolus looking for it. Sad to say, things may have gotten a little bit out of hand. Every dwarf in Rungtosolus is dead! shouted Tristos. Keep your voice 
down, scolded Rustberm. I'm handling it, okay? Let's just keep this between guild members and be on the lookout for a baby gnome shooting lightning bolts out of her ass or whatever. Can you do that for me? Tristos tried to ignore the feeling of his heart going into cardiac arrest as he said, Sure. No problem. Rustberm slapped him on the arm. I knew I could count on you. Tristos waited for Bussard and Rustberm to disappear into the crowd before hurrying back home. Tristos wasn't sure what he would find when he returned home. He walked into a house that was unusually quiet. Cora had her back to him as she fussed around with the fire in the hearth. Tristos felt a chill in the air and looked up to see a hole had been blasted straight through the roof. Furniture around the living area sat at weird angles. The patter of little feet against wood skirting behind him preceded the sight of little Terra dashing through the messy household. <laughs> How was town? asked Cora. Tristos could not detect any feeling in her voice. It was fine. Cora spun around to give Tristos an ugly sight. The jelly blisters on her face were starting to fade, but now her nose was the size of her entire arm. Her ears were still huge, an extra arm clawed at the air out of her midsection, and a long, slimy tongue fell out of her mouth. Notice anything different about me? Wondered Cora with three hands on her hips. Tristos wasn't sure if she noticed the changes or not. To cover for himself, he just said, You're beautiful as ever, my dear. Look at what that dirty little gnome did to me! She knew. Fenric must have told her the whole sordid tale. Trista slowly backed away to the open door. I'm sorry I didn't tell you the truth, but it's really not that bad. I am a monster, shouted Cora. I want that little pest out of my house this instant! It's not that easy. The guild was behind the death of her family. All of it. The dwarf who came yesterday is probably dead. They're looking for her. She's just a baby who can't control her power. We can't give her up to them. They'll kill her. I don't care, shouted Cora so vilely her words were like poison. Her long tongue licked the air like a snake as she drew closer toward Tristos. That little good-for-nothing child is nothing but trouble. She deserves to be dead. 
The couple's other children certainly thought otherwise. At that exact moment, a burst of purple light sent a little Agamatha scooting behind her parents on her bottom. She climbed to her feet with a smile on her face. Yay! Cried Agamatha. Again! Again! I want to play with the baby now. It's my turn! Argued Fenric as he chased Terra through the house. You're hogging her! Cora buried her face in her third hand. Kids, your father and I are having a discussion. Go outside! The kids were too excited to bother with noticing their tense surroundings as they played with Terra. The little gnome giggled as she chased them all over the house, her chubby little arms flailing over her head with glee. She was just being a kid. Terra didn't know her own power, and she certainly didn't ask for it. Tristos couldn't help feeling sorry for her. In that moment, he knew he had to protect her like his own. Kids, listen to me! Cora still tried to restore order in the household with little luck. That child is a diseased past. You can't play with her. There's no telling what she might do to you. Don't touch her. Terra looked up right at Cora and glowed purple. Tristos cowered behind an upturned rocking chair in fright. A beam of light shot out of Terra, hitting Cora dead on. Tristos tentatively peered over the chair, wondering what disformed body part Cora might have next. Surprisingly, Cora seemed to be okay. Other than the number of the other previous jinxes placed upon the matriarch, nothing appeared to be amiss. Cora? wondered Tristos tentatively. Are you okay? Cora opened her mouth to speak, but no sound came out. Terra had successfully rendered her mute. Tristos had to admit this was fortunate. Now he could speak his piece without Cora contradicting him at every turn. She would have to listen to him. He turned to Terra to say, Thanks. Terra just looked at him blankly for a moment, and went back to chasing the other kids around the house. She's got nobody, Tristos began. We have to see through our hate for just her sake, though, because she needs us. Just this morning, you wanted to adopt her. Nothing has changed about Terra since this morning, just your perception of her. She's not a beast. She's not an animal. She's not a pest. She's a person. And we have to do the right thing by treating her like one. It's okay to be scared. But look at the kids. The troop of four youngsters had moved outside to chase each other around in a circle. They all looked happier than Tristos had ever seen them. I don't want my kids to learn fear for their fellow people and hate from me. We're different, and that should be celebrated. So the dwarves took some business away from us. If not them, it would be someone else. That's the nature of this world. Everything is temporary. But the bond between family can and should endure. I'm done being a monster of hate. I'm not going to let this evil infect me anymore. And I hope you can see it in your heart to do the same. 
For the next few months, Tristos was Terra's primary caregiver. He would keep her company during the night, and talk to her even though she couldn't talk back. Terra slept in a basket throughout the day in Tristos' workshop. Despite Cora's objections, he always brought her in during the night, allowing her to slumber in their bedroom. When she awoke with nightmares, which was often, he was the one to soothe her. Terra continued to have disturbing accidents with magic. Tristos was convinced she couldn't control her power. Well, there was always a lot of fear that she would set the house on fire, or worse. Most of the magic that came from Terra was harmless. Cora was fine. All the bodily disfigurements she suffered from Terra were gone within a few hours, and she was back to being her normal self. Still, she remained standoffish and distant toward the child. Tristos didn't know much about magic. There weren't many people in Rukasolas who could point him in the right direction either. He knew magic had been around in Fabella as far back as he could remember. Powerful groups like the Sentinels, Titans, and Olympians were scattered throughout history and folklore. Tristos didn't know how to read, so all his information on the subject had to be delivered to him by traveling bards and merchants in Adele. He could never ask any of them directly about the case related to Terra, but nobody knew of any babies blessed with the ability to use magic. The blacksmith guild had murdered or chased away all dwarfs and a tremendous amount of halflings from Rukasolis. Rusperm proudly boasted about all the senseless homicide at guild meetings. Tristos stopped attending these meetings, claiming to be sick and busy trying to fill large important orders. He did everything and anything he could think of to hide the truth that these people were no longer his friends, and they were not a group he wanted to spend any time around at all. Nobody else seemed to be the least bit concerned about the lack of halflings in Rukasolis. All the humans, fawns, harpies, goblins, and merfolk who came to pick up their goods expressed their happiness that their fair town was mysteriously cleared out of all the little people. Most of them hadn't even noticed that the halfling population was missing until Tristos said something about it. At which point, the self-absorbed clientele shrugged their shoulders and thanked God it wasn't them and went on their merry way. Only the Tar population displayed any worry over these events. Tars in Fabella were centaurs, minotaurs, and slithtars, who always got a bad rap from other people because they wore little clothing. Many people didn't consider them to be intelligent races at all, referring to them as half-breeds, or sub-people not part of the main group. It was one more aspect of the world that Tristos had his eyes opened to. Another example of how he'd carelessly been guilty of belittling entire groups of people who had been mistreated. Tristos continued to stay at home where he worked on his shop and cared after Terra. He went to great lengths to hide her whenever a client came calling. The last thing he wanted was for word of Terra to get back to the guild. It took a while for him to find a groove and routine that worked, but Tristos started to enjoy his new life. 
The same, unfortunately, could not be said for Cora. This has gone on long enough, shouted Cora one night. I thought that you would come to your senses, but clearly you're not going to change your mind. I'm changing for the better, because I'm putting in the effort, which is more than I can say for you, shot back Tristos. Why do you always have to make me out to be the monster here? Demanded Korra. I don't want to be the villain. You're not some holy altruistic hero. Don't pretend you're anything other than some scared delusional goblin. I'm trying to do what I think is right. Tristos rocked back and forth with the sleeping Terra in his arms. My eyes have been opened to the suffering of the people around me. You can't expect me to turn my back on that and just go about business as usual. Cora paced around their first floor living room. I believe there is a time to stand up for the unfortunate, but I also believe there's a time to turn the other cheek. Tara needs someone to help her. That's not us. Well... It's certainly not you, quipped Tristos. Turn her over to the military. Cora glared at Terra. That's what we should have done in the first place. They'll get her to someone who can help her. It's their job. Tristos tossed his head dismissively. It was also their job to stop her family from being murdered, and look how that turned out. You didn't see them, Cora. They don't care to investigate. I've tried getting them to arrest the guild. They won't do it. You just haven't been trying hard enough. Cora flat out refused to believe the military was as unhelpful as her husband said they were. Give them the child. I'm not asking you. I'm telling you. This discussion is over. Cora had always been the type of goblinist to take things into her own hands when she didn't get her way. This was no exception. When Tristos turned his back to her, she took a pan from her kitchen tools and whacked him over the head with it. The concussive force of the pan meeting his head caused Tristos to drop Terra in her basket. Cora took a coil of rope to tie her dazed and confused husband to a wooden post in the center of the household. Cora, don't! I'm done talking! Snapped Cora. This child is going to be delivered to the military, and they will decide what to do with her. Then we can go back to our normal lives. End of discussion! They'll kill her, shouted Tristos. You're just being dramatic, Cora said dismissively. You're not thinking clearly. The military is here to protect us. I'm not a bad person. I'm only doing what's best for us. Why can't you see that? 
Terra whined from her basket. Cora reached for her sleeping potion in a cabinet and hastened to feed it to the baby. Terra was too weak to fight Cora off. As the green liquid slipped into the baby's mouth, she fell fast asleep. There! Cora smiled with victory. Uh, that should keep her from having any more nasty fits. I should have drugged her sooner. The sound of horse hooves outside the house announced that they had visitors. It's about time! Remarked Cora as she left to open the door. I was beginning to think my litter had gotten lost. Don't open the door! Cora didn't heed Tristo's warning. As soon as she unlocked the front door of the house, the heavy wooden edge smashed into her head. Cora fell to the floor as blood drained out of a cut in the side of her forehead. Tristo struggled against his restraints, but his wife's skill with a knot was too good. He couldn't rush to her aid. All he could do was stare up at goblins, Buzzhard, and Rusperm as they entered the house. Rusperm's shrewd eyes roved around the household. Now, I really didn't think that you would be stupid enough to shelter a baby dwarf. There was a time when I thought that you were the best of us, Tristos. Your father never would have stooped this low. It appears the apple has fallen very far from the tree. Don't you touch her. Rusperm chuckled. You're not really in the position to stop us from doing anything. Cora stirred from her place on the floor. I... I, I sent for a soldier! And your letter wound up in the possession of a soldier loyal to the guild. Explained Rusperm with a casual wave of his hand. The rotund goblin stalked toward baby Terra. Rumors of this child have spread all over the island. She's too dangerous to be kept alive. Imagine the kind of raw, wild, and reckless things she'd be capable of if she grows up. No, this power is an abomination that leads to the disorder and chaos of this world. The only responsible thing to do is snuff it out like a candle. At this, Bussard marched toward the fireplace. The flames highlighted the hulking orc's thick hands as he seized a log from the fire. Tristos watched in horror as Bussard set fire to his own. Embers ate away cherished family heirlooms in seconds as the house was quickly engulfed in an inferno. Kids! screamed Cora. She tried to get up, but Bussard pushed her against Tristos. Rusperm picked up Terra in her basket. The choice is yours, Tristos. Save your children and your home, or follow us to save some miserable little creature. Time is running out, old boy. No savior is going to come unto your rescue now. 
With those final words of parting, Rustburm turned around and marched out the door with a sleeping Terra. Basord lumbered into the dark after him. Korra struggled up and fumbled with the knot she tied around Tristo's wrists. I'm sorry. Oh, oh lord, you were right. How could I be so stupid? There'll be plenty of time for apologies in the future. Lord knows there's a lot that I have to atone for too. We have to get the kids and save the house. The house is gone. Tristos tore himself away from the ropes binding him to the burning post. Our family will survive. And that includes Terra. Tristos and Korra worked together to quickly get the kids out of the burning house and to safety. With his family safe, Tristos seized a freshly made sword from his workshop and leapt aboard the family unicorn and tore off after Rustberm and Basord to rescue baby Terra from their ugly clutches. He didn't have time to put a saddle on the animal or even a bridle. He rode bareback with his brown hands hugging the steed's neck and wild mane to keep from falling off as they picked up speed. His approach was by no means a silent one. The beat of the unicorn's hooves on the hard ground alerted Rustberm and Bussard to his presence as he appeared right behind them. Rustberm was on a dragon horse with Terra clutched under one arm. Dragon horses were literally as the name described, proud reptilian stallions layered with large, tough, glittering scales, and blessed with the ability to breathe fire. Bussord, on the other hand, rode atop a Buru. Burus were huge, feline beasts with wild manes. These vicious monsters respected a rider, more for their strength and less for their morals. Each paw was about the size of a full-grown man's face. It was impossible not to be afraid in the face of these two adversaries atop such fearsome beasts. Tristos allowed the fear ten seconds to wash over him. He gulped hard and surged forward atop his unicorn. Deal with him, ordered Rustberm. Bussard tugged on the reins, directing his Buru to turn around. The monstrous feline's huge black eyes centered on Tristos, glowing under the light of the colorful aurora overhead. The bloodthirsty orc reached behind him with his right hand to unstrap a massive battle axe of his own making off his thick back. The weapon's razor-sharp blade was already stained with the blood of lives it had taken. The axe itself was so heavy only Bussard could lift it with his gargantuan muscular arms. The unicorn froze on the path in terror. Tristos could feel the old mare under his legs fighting with her master to flee. Easy girl. He said reassuringly with a pat on her neck to calm the animal down. His leathery left hand moved from the unicorn's cloud white coat to find the handle of his sword. With a mighty war cry, 
buzzard charged forward on his burrow. Tristos gave his unicorn a swift kick to surge forward. The wild feline burrow was fierce. There was no doubt about that. But despite the monster's impressive girth, teeth, and claws, it was still not as fast as a unicorn. Tristos guided his unicorn swiftly on Bussard's less dominant left side. Bussard was too big to react in time. Tristos sliced his sword into the Buru's belly. Blood gushed from the fatally wounded Buru. As the animal slipped closer to death, Bussard made his mount stay up just long enough to spin around and come back at Tristos from behind. Tristos saw him in the corner of his eye. Bussard brought up his mighty axe and brought down just the handle through empty air. The axe blade had flown right off the handle due to Bussard's shoddy craftsmanship. Without it, the battle axe was little more than a big stick. The blade had fallen to the ground right behind Bussard, leaving him wide open to attack. Tristos brought down his sword on Bussard's neck. The great big Buru finally fell dead with a heavy thud on the ground. Bussard's severed head rolled off his shoulders, coming to a stop still with a look of confusion frozen upon his face. Tristos didn't have time to admire his handiwork. He still had to get Terra back from Rustberm. A jet of fire roared through the cold still air. The fire missed Tristos and set the brush lining the road ablaze. Tristos already knew that he would find Rustberm in front of him, relying on the power of his dragon horse to fight. Another burst of fire from the dragon horse frightened the unicorn so much the mare went into a retreat. Tristos tried getting his unicorn to stop, but she threw him from her back. Tristos lay on the ground. He'd fallen so fast, it took some time for his brain to catch up to what happened. It hurt to move. The sword had slipped from his grasp in the fall. The sound of Rustberm dismounting from his dragon horse caught Tristos' attention. For a while, all Tristos could do was listen and think. Listen as Rustberm's heavy footsteps neared him think that the fat goblin leader of the guild must be attempting to check if Tristos was dead. Listen as the blade slid out of his scabbard. Think that Rustberm was preparing to kill him and would waste no time bringing down the sword upon Tristos' heart to finish the job. Listen as fire ate away at the surrounding brush. Think about finding something to use as a weapon to defend himself. The axe blade lay just a few feet away from his grip, summoning all his remaining strength. Tristos found the power to raise his head and roll over onto his stomach. Rustberm, aware now that his adversary was still alive, rushed forward. Tristos crawled to the axe blade. 
He reached out to seize it. His fingers just closed around the blade, and he rolled over with it, clutched in his leathery hands, just as Rusperm lunged forward. Blood dribbled down Tristo's hands and fingers. He couldn't see much else other than just Rusperm's stained white cotton tunic. For a moment, he just froze there with the axe embedded in Rusperm. When Tristos finally relaxed his grip, Rusperm's corpse fell to the ground. It was over. Tristos pulled himself up to his feet. The first thing he did was race to check on Terra in her basket. She was still fast asleep, never to know how close she came to certain death. Satisfied that baby Terra was safe and sound, Tristos turned his attention to what to do about Rusperm and Bussard's bodies. The raging fire afforded him the perfect opportunity to kick them into the blaze. Any soldiers investigating the scene would think the pair of goblins perished in the inferno. The dragon horse was allowed to flee into the night. Keeping it would have caused suspicion from the goblin community to center on Tristos. The job done, he took Terra in her basket and walked back home. The house was gone, but the family remained whole. With one additional member, they all scrunched together in the blacksmith workshop. It was a tight fit, but they had each other, and that's what mattered. Cora spent the next few days fawning over baby Terra. Tristo spent long hours just leaning against the threshold of his workshop, watching his beautiful wife dance with the baby gnome in the little space lit by candlelight and the occasional purple glow of Terra's magic. In looking at the two of them, you'd never know that Cora had any ill will toward Dwarfkind at all. She'd fully embraced Terra as her daughter. That made the day Tristos dreaded would come all the more painful. Hogan. Terra's dwarven father returned to collect his daughter. There was little argument over the matter. Tristos and Cora gave themselves and the children a few days to say goodbye to Terra, but they were only prolonging the inevitable. She needed to go back to her family. I had to run from the guild members in the fort, explained Hogan. I would have come earlier if I could. I know you would have, said Tristos as he met with the dwarf in the ruins of the house. We separated before the baby was born, continued Hogan. I wasn't there when she was born. I wasn't there for her first steps. I 
I, I don't even know her. You have the chance to be there for her now, said Tristos. Hogan looked back at Terra and Cora. Part of me wonders if I should just leave her here. She has a loving family, and I... I don't know how to be a father. You just care for her and protect her with your life, coached Tristos as he leaned against the charred remains of a beam. Teach her right from wrong. Show her how to love people and treat others with kindness. That's all any of us can do. Hogan nodded. I like the name Terra. Your wife chose well. I don't know what her mother called her, but I like to think that she would have liked it too. Are you heading to Fort Orthos? Asked Tristos. No. We're heading back to the mainland, said Hogan, puncturing the bubble of hope Tristos had of visiting Terra as she grew up. We can't stay in a lawless place like this. Cora appeared behind the dwarf with baby Terra and her belongings. She choked back tears as she handed Terra over to Hogan. She's got a rash on her tummy. I made some ointment that will help soothe it. Just rub it over the rash nightly for the next few days. Thank you, said Hogan. Cora forced a smile. It was all she could do to keep from collapsing into tears. Tristos pulled his wife close as they watched Hogan climb atop the back of a boar and set off into the sunset. Tara looked back at them over her father's shoulder. Her big eyes watered with tears under a mane of blonde hair. She glowed purple. A trail of sad purple sparks followed the path of father and daughter as they rode off into the distance. That's going to do it for this episode of Archives of Fabella. This isn't the last we'll hear of Terra. She grows to go on to do great things. So great, in fact, that the School of Magic is named after her. That's right, ladies and gents. St. Terra's Academy of Magic and Science, the institution where Emmett taught at the last episode, set in 1987, was named after our girl. So... Now the question is, what did Terra do to have this school named after her? That's a story for another time. Archives of Abella is created, hosted, and edited by Dylan Foley, with music by Garrett Ferris and Audioblocks. Books are available on Amazon in ebook and paperback. Look outside of what is possible and think about what might be.